Now entering Nerdist.com. Welcome to the Writers Panel. I'm Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the podcast. I created the show because I wanted to talk to writers about the business and process of writing. I've had more than 400 writers on the show, so go back and check the archives. I'm sure you'll find more creators and more shows that you're interested in. I'm a writer myself, having written with my partner Ben Acker for Supernatural, Puss in Boots, FX's Cassius and Clay, among others. We've also written comics from Marvel, Image, Dynamite, and more. We created a show called The Thrilling Adventure Hour. Maybe you'd like it. Go to thrillingadventurehour.com for more info. Let me know who you want to hear on this podcast by following me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, like the color, only more so, uh, and follow me on Tumblr at writerspanel.tumblr.com. And if you enjoy the show, please leave a review on iTunes. It always makes me feel good about myself. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! This is it. This is how we start. Peter Matei is here, who is the uh, the creator of the new series, Outsiders. Do you want to just give us kind of the, the soft pitch for it? And then I'd really like to hear about how you pitched this show, because it's unusual. Well, A, I didn't pitch it, uh, which really? I'll get to. Okay. Um, I suppose the, the quick pitch is that it's about a kind of uh, off-the-grid clan, um, which has been living on a mountaintop in eastern Kentucky um, for a couple of centuries, really kind of living their own um, sort of gypsy clan kind of life. And they are now being threatened um, with eviction from this mountaintop uh, by the state and state authorities and a coal company, an energy company that wants that needs to remove them in order to blow the mountain up for mountaintop removal to get to the coal. Mm-hmm. So that's the story. It's a kind of it's a struggle, kind of a David and Goliath struggle between you know people living, um, you know the way people lived hundreds and thousands of years ago and the rest of us today. Well, let's talk about the uh, conception of this project and then sort of go through the process. Um, there's some stuff I want to dig in on, so I, I think I'll stop you along the way. But Did you see the pilot or from. have you seen a couple of episodes? I saw a couple of episodes. Okay, cool. Yeah. I mean, where, where did the story come from? Uh, you know, everybody asks me that, and I just answer the question badly every, every single time. Um, but really, it's, it's funny... Um, it it just a lot of different things that were kind of percolating that I was interested in. I mean, one of them is that I've always been interested in kind of like alternative, you know, kinds of cultures and ways of living and stuff like that. Um, I, I suppose like a lot of people, uh, a part of me wants to just go live, you know, off the grid. And I really wish that I didn't have to fucking look at my phone all the time. <laughs> you know, I, I, I really, um, I, I think that, you know, I love being in the country and stuff like that. So I just was always interested in these sorts of like escapist fantasies. Mm-hmm. But I've also also been interested in them just as, you know, as a sort of like history of like dropout culture, what... Um, the writer Hakeem Bey once called dropout culture. And it's like, you know, as Americans, we essentially are dropouts. We dropped out of society in England or wherever we, we come from um, at, at the beginning of the founding of this country. You know, we were essentially people that just just wanted to fuck it, get away from the king and the queen and whatever, and and come over here and live the way we wanted to live and, and be free mm-hmm. of that stuff. And and that energy, I think, is still really, really strong in this country. And it manifests itself in everything from, like, you know, biker gangs to, um, you know, utopian communities in New Mexico and hippie communities, the rainbow family, and stuff like that. And I find that kind of stuff really, really interesting. Because I don't think you have it in other countries um, as much as you do here um, that I know of. Um, And then I think that my own particular just interests and, and... um, and politics kind of came into play also. You know, I lived for over 20 years in um, Hipsterburg, Williamsburg, Brooklyn. 
And I watched that go from a kind of like bohemian enclave, which was sort of like a place that nobody wanted to live except for weirdo artists like me, um, to being now kind of like a sort of like Rodeo Drive <laughs> of hipster dumb. And, uh, and, it's, and everybody got priced out. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really kind of like Wall Street's kind of taken over. You know, at the same time, I was really f- uh, fascinated with the financial crisis. I actually um, did a treatment for, uh, got some big-time producers involved in and pitched a show about Wall Street in 2008 called Fucked. And the premise of the show was that um, while Wall Street was like on this, you know, tear... Um, that actually it was all a big lie, and we were, as a country, fucked. And as I pitched, as, as I was out here in L.A. pitching that show, um, Lehman Brothers was collapsing, and the entire financial crisis was starting. And we would pitch the show and get laughs, because they were like, how did you come, did you come up with this yesterday? And I was like, well, no, I came up with it four months ago. Um, it just took us four months to get out here to do it. Uh, and they were like, we love it, but it's just too timely. <laughs> you know, like this is just oh feels God. too obvious. <laughs> so I so I didn't sell the show, but I ended up writing a play about <laughs> that world and everything else. And I um, was really fascinated with the Occupy Wall Street movement. And, and, I, and I ended up reading... Um, a book called Debt by David Graeber. Is that his name? I think it's David Graeber. Um, and he is an anthropologist who was teaching in, in, at NYU and in England. And um, he coined the phrase, we are the 99%. And, the, and debt is really, it's a history of debt, but it's really just sort of like the history of money. Hmm. And I found it really, really fascinating because it's like everything in our world is really about money. And um, and what money does and what it doesn't. And I looked looked at you know my neighborhood where I lived, where before money came in, people were really nice to each other. And if you needed a pickup truck, you'd call your friend, and he would say, "I'll, I'll leave the keys on the front left tire. You can use my pickup truck." Once the money came in, people started hating each other, because now it's like, "Yeah, you can stay in my place while I go away, but I'm going to charge you a thousand dollars." Um, because everything just became so expensive and it just changed the whole dynamic. There wasn't a community anymore. Mm -hmm. And I found that really very interesting. Like, why is that? Um, I, I then just started thinking about like, what, what would a group of people be like that, uh, you know, that really tried to live in a completely different way. I've always thought that would be an interesting setting for a, a program, um, for a series, and then I came across, uh, I read an article about the Jackson White family, and they're a bunch of people, they're actually what um, anthropologists call a tri, tri-racial isolate community. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they live on some mountains in, in uh, northern New Jersey. Um, and I thought, well, that's really interesting. Sundance Channel actually ended up doing a, a series called Red Road, which is really mm-hmm. directly about them. Um, and so I started thinking about putting this family in Appalachia because of mountaintop removal, the really you know epic sort of drama of being kicked off a mountain mm-hmm. um, because you're going to blow the mountain up, not turn it into a resort or anything, but actually dynamite it to smithereens. I thought it was kind of dramatic and, and, <laughs> and good. Um, so I started doing some research there. I saw a great documentary called The Wild and Wonderful Whites of West Virginia by Julian Nitzberg. Um, and I did started doing some reading about stuff, and it all it all just kind of came together um, into this kind of strange idea in my head. And I realized that um, this clan, who I called the Ferals, um, that maybe there was something a little bit. Uh, they maybe had certain kinds of powers, or there was a led. There were legends about them mm-hmm. over time that said that they had certain kinds of um, supernatural sort of powers, or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, whether that is or isn't true is something you'll have to sort of tune in to find out. Um, but I, I kind of put all these things into one big stew, and uh, and realized that it was completely like not a pitchable. <laughs> premise, and it was something that would never really sell, and I just sort of ignored it for a couple of years and worked on some other things. Um, I, I published a novel and some other stuff, and um, 
but it, this idea just wouldn't really leave my my head and I realized I just needed to get it out on paper and kind of get get it over with and so I wrote it super quickly like like in a few weekends was it why did it want to be a series why wasn't it a novel why isn't it a play um I guess a good question. I think I th- and I thought about that. Like maybe this needs to be a screenplay, or maybe it needs to be a big fat George R. R. Martin type novel. You know, um, which would take me ten years. Uh, and I think, but I think that you know we and we can talk about my experience in the world of television mm-hmm. uh, later. But I had been frustrated with TV and sort of took a few years off, and then the, the landscape really changed. And there were programs on the air that were that were really, really I did I just loved, you know, that I thought were really, really good. And so it felt like more so than independent film mm-hmm. that this was the place to really try to do something interesting. Um, and that if I wrote it as an indie film, if I wrote, if I wrote it as a big blockbuster screenplay, a I'm not that good at that kind of writing. Um, and I probably it just probably wouldn't it just wouldn't come naturally to me. Mm-hmm. And if I wrote it as something that I wanted to do as an indie film, nobody would ever finance it. It would be kind of too expensive and too weird. Um, but TV was taking some bigger chances. So I, so I thought, well, it's like fifty five pages. I can that's pretty easy. So <laughs> right. know, like um, so I I just did it as a pilot um, and uh, did it really quickly. Didn't think about you know staying true to any kind of a form. Didn't do act breaks or anything like that. I just wrote it as a like sixty-one page um, uh, movie, basically, mm-hmm. and didn't think too too hard about it at all. And my attitude was basically, it is what it is, and you're either going to dig it or you're not going to dig it. And I'm not going to play any games with it. And mm-hmm. so, um, we, if we want you want me to continue to talk about the whole process of how I got it. Uh, on the air? Uh, in a minute. Or I want to talk minute. about yeah, yeah. this, the writing process yeah. first. Um, you know, you had this world. Yeah. And you had the feral clan. How, did the pilot present itself to you? How did you know what what to tell first? How did you know where to start? It, that's a good question. You know, I did it so quickly and so instinctively mm-hmm. that I don't quite remember. All I know is I made... Over the course of a few months, I just made some random, vague notes about what it would be and who the characters would be and what some of the conflicts would be. And um, it all just sort of, it, it all just kind of like, you know, it was like a song that writes itself. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I knew that there would be a cop involved to sort of ground us in the world of television and to and to be the, the the face of authority. You know, I knew that the clan was run by a lady, but was a very macho clan, but it had a kind of matriarchal mm-hmm. matriarchal uh, structure to it. I knew that there was a bad guy who was her son. Um, I knew that there was a good guy who was his son. Uh, and I knew that there was a, a strong woman in the clan who's Guinevere in the show. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, well, we need a character that sort of bridges both worlds and that would be a way in, you know, quote unquote for us as an audience. And so that became Asa, someone who had left the mountain 10 years earlier, spent 10 years down in the world with the likes of us and then decided that uh, we were a bunch of assholes and he, and he wanted to go back. So that could so that was basically the structure and then I just started making notes for you know for plot things, but I didn't really try too hard to make it very conventional. Mm-hmm. I I kind of let it just be what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and as I said, wrote it really quickly. Yeah, how quickly is really quickly for you? Well, I I, I mean the the first draft was done in under a month, but I also was working basically a day job at Sony Music, di- mm-hmm. directing um, different kinds of videos and things like that. And uh, and so I really kind of did it in, in some mornings and weekends. Yeah, well, it, that's great. I mean, there's something, and I think you can feel this even so far removed when it's on the screen, that it's a story you had to tell. Well, good. Yeah, good did you, good, did yeah. you feel that in writing it? You must have. Oh, yeah, totally. It just kind of poured out of me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, I want to just get, I want to go down this alley for a second. You know, you mentioned that there's a difference to you in writing the indie film and the blockbuster film. Uh, I mean, obviously there's a difference when we see these things, but what's the difference in writing them to you? What's the difference in approach? Um, Well, I, 
I've tried to write blockbuster type films to sell them, and I've failed miserably. Um, I'm just not very good at it. They're not the kind of movies that I go to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, the difference is really like writing a blockbuster film. You're kind of a. I, I mean, it's it's not a very um, instinctive process. It's really like. Uh, it's kind of, I don't know what's the analogy, it's kind of like being a mechanic or something. Mm-hmm. It's much more science. Um, and you really have to think about all the conventions and all that kind of stuff in terms of your storytelling has to be incredibly clear. And to be honest, I, I, don't, I just don't think I'm smart enough to really pull that off very well. I'm, as an artist, much more of an improviser. Mm-hmm. And I work much more instinctively. Um, you know, I started doing, doing theater mm-hmm. um, and, and visual arts. And so it it just wasn't like I never was the guy that, you know, watched Star Wars a hundred times and then I had to be a writer that wrote Star Wars. Mm-hmm. Um, it was more like I saw Antonioni films and early Polanski films and stuff like that. And I wanted to, you know, do really obscure, weirdo <laughs> European indie art films. Yeah. Like that's where I got really excited. And so the writing process is is really different because you want it to just be something unique to your to your voice yeah. and to who you are because that's you know what's going to work um and then always for me in the re, in the rewriting process and the editing and rewriting that's when you try to like you know distill it into something that's a much more clear story mm-hmm. well that that instinctual kind of writing uh you know well may give us something great for an indie screenplay for uh, a novel for a play and again we're sort of catching up to where we are now it doesn't always work in television right there's your you have 10 episodes to deliver or whatever it is and you have a writing staff and you have a production schedule so how did you how do you adjust for that well you know creating uh, 13 episodes of television was a huge huge learning curve for me I had never worked in a room before Mm -hmm. Um, and so uh, you know, basically sitting in a room with five writers and spitballing ideas and everything was uh, both really fun and inspiring, and also like really frustrating and hard. And you know, it, it was quite a it was quite a process because, I mean, for one thing, I, as I said, I wrote this thing really really quickly. It wasn't the kind of show which I've written in the past, where it's like you really kind of know where it's going. Mm-hmm. And the pilot is just the little tease to the audience, but you know where this thing is going. Right. I had no idea where this thing was going. <laughs> um, apart from the larger conflict between the two worlds, I, I just didn't have a clue. Wow. And it was such a big, weird world, um, you know, with so many different characters and, 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 and it was its own creation, you know, that it, it just I just put it on the page and just kind of put it out there. And the next thing I knew, we were sitting in a room trying to figure out break story, you know. Um, so it was it was hard. And I think everybody looked at me like, well, now what? And I was like, I don't know. Hmm. Um, let's figure it out. Uh, so it, indefinitely, you know, I think that especially in a, in a world like this, which is so kind of weird and unique and full of all kinds of strange details, you know, like they have their own spoken language. Mm-hmm. Um, they have their own ways of doing things, their own rituals and their own codes and their own ways of dressing and acting and things they don't know about the real world. You know, they don't have money, so they obviously just don't know what a credit card is. I mean, they know what it is, but they don't have any right. and things like that. They've never touched a computer uh, or a cell phone. So we had to like really, you know, you, there's a lot of details like that that are are kind of different and unique for an audience. And so I think in a world like that, you have to be really clear with your storytelling. Hmm. I'm not sure that we always are as clear as we need to be. Um, but, uh, which maybe is a good thing because as you said, you're kind of like, you fall into this world and you've got to kind of figure it out for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I think we, a smart audience would rather be catching up than being talked down to. Right. That's how I, that's totally how I feel. I mean, watching something like Game of Thrones, I feel like there's like a third of it that I don't even understand what's going on. And I think that's because they're shorthanding from the books. Hmm. And they're they're just saying you have to catch up and you have to understand what these things are. And you have to. And I love that about it Hmm. because it means I've got to really pay attention. And I feel like it's smarter than I am. 
you know, and and that I want to be around people that are smarter sure. than me. I want to play tennis with people that are better than me. Yeah. Did and you so, find that in the room? Did you, you know, was the staff, did they raise your game? Yeah, absolutely. That's great. It, no, absolutely. That's what I said from the very beginning was it's just amazing being in a room with people that I feel are smarter than me and yeah. certainly more experienced because they, they were all experienced TV writers. That's great. Yeah. Um, all right, let's go back. So okay. it, it, hearing that you did not have a roadmap for this, I think is going to be startling to a lot of people because that is what we are told when we are bringing out a project is know the story. You have to be able to tell everyone you know where this is going, or at least act like you do. Um, what was your experience in selling it? Well, um, that's a good question. Uh, now I'm, I'm kind of remembering the whole process because uh, um, do you want me to go back to sort of like from, from after I wrote the first yeah, draft I mean, to so how, I got, how draft. it got to the thing? And then so I had this draft. Next? I sent it to a, f- a friend of mine who happens to be Adam Bernstein who directed the first two episodes. Mm-hmm. And I said... I just wrote this thing. It's completely ridiculous. You know, what do you think? And he called me up and he said, it's so weird. I've never read anything like this before. I love it. And uh, I said, huh, okay, maybe there is something here. Um, Because I just thought it was so bizarre that it was like no one would ever, you know, really respond to it. What, What to you was bizarre about it? Just all all the details, the, and also the fact that I just I really wrote it for myself. Mm-hmm. So the politics of it, the fact that you know, it's sort of these these people living in this primitive way. They have their own language and everything else, and they don't believe in money. So they're kind of like anarchists, you know, um, and they're being put upon by like the coal company and the state who's kind of in collusion with the big energy company and stuff. So it kind of had this environmental Mm -hmm. politics kind of thing behind it a little bit. And I just thought, well, that would kill it, you know, immediately um, because it's not, you know, sort of like mainstream American thinking, Um, just lots of different things about it just felt. And also like the way that I, I didn't really plot it out in a really super clear way where there's like one lead character and mm-hmm. and you're brought into what that person's conflict is and what their boundaries their barriers are to success and you know what what they what they want it it just was like a lot of stories being told um and it was more about a world than it was about like a single character mm-hmm. so it 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 didn't i mean having pitched and sold like half a dozen or more um, scripts over the years, I kind of knew the game a little bit, and this just didn't conform to anything that mm-hmm. I, th- I thought that anybody would take seriously. So, so anyway, I, I at the time um, I had, as I said before, I had sold a bunch of stuff, and nothing ever got shot or, or made the air, and I kind of got my my you know my story my. People will probably get mad at me for saying this, but it's like every year I tried to make like my first the first pilots that I sold, I thought were pretty smart. And I was I would get calls from like the head of the network or the head of the agency where I was saying, like, I love this. This is as good as anything that I've read in years and years and years. But it's a little cably. Right. And so I, I mean, I. The, the head of different you know networks would say the same thing to me. We love it. We just we can't do it. Mm-hmm. And so every year I tried to pitch something that was a little stupider. <laughs> and finally, after <laughs> like eight years of, and I sold scripts every year for like six or seven years. Mm-hmm. Finally, I was like pitching. You know, the blind cop who right. uh, you, you you know what I'm saying. <laughs> and. Um, uh, he sees what others can't. He sees what others can't is the tagline and, you know, the whole thing. And, and then I, and I wasn't selling those things either, and I realized I'm just in bad faith, mm-hmm. and I got to stop. So I just didn't pitch one season, and I, as I said, I wrote a novel. I had a weird indie sci-fi screenplay that I was set up uh, briefly that we were going to do, and... So a couple of years, two three years passed, and I um, and I wrote this thing, which, having been out of the game for a little while, it was like I could just do it fresh and not yeah. really care. Sure. Um, and so having been out of the game for a while, also like my agent had left his agency and gone to a different one, but I didn't go with them because I had this little film project sure. back where I was, and then that film project didn't go forward, and then that agent left that, so I I was agentless. Yeah. And I had a book agent, and he liked it, but. 
you know, I, I, I had a lawyer and, you know, he got it to different people. And the response was always like, it's really cool, but you probably are never going to sell this. Mm-hmm. And then um, I uh, finally just decided, you know, uh, before I give up on this thing, I'm going to just give, get it to my old agent, which I did. And he loved it. Um, which is why I, I loved always loved him. And he <laughs> let said, me, I, "Let me inter- uh, yeah. interrupt you right here for a second. After kind of vomiting out that first draft, yep. uh, did, did I rewrite you, it? Did you rewrite? No. What version were they reading? The very well, almost the very first. It, wow. they, they were reading the second version, but I would say that the second version was a cleanup. Mm-hmm. I just maybe changed five to ten percent of sure. it. And my attitude was." Uh, I'm, I'm not going to play that game where every person that you send it to says, but I really think that she, you know, the lead character should be a woman. Can you do a new draft where, where the lead character is a woman? And all those things where the, every every different agent and every different manager sure. or whatever wants their draft. And yeah. I just decided I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Well, um, it seems like you had a very pure vision for what this story was. Even even not knowing the full story, you knew this world, you knew these characters. Yeah, but it also, you know, there were there were characters in the original draft that aren't in the, um, mm-hmm. in what we in what we shot. And so I ended up doing a lot of writing on the thing. Um, it was just that in order to sell it, I had made this decision that it was like, there's enough in here for somebody to look at it and say, there's a show here. Gotcha. Now let's get to work and, and fix it and make it better. But I, I wasn't going to go down that road of like, you know, doing all this crazy rewrites and then having, having them pass. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I just decided to do it that way. But there was a whole, like, there were three characters and a whole a story arc that, that you know, when we got Paul Giamatti and, and his partner Dan Carey, Involved, they pointed out that that quite didn't work, and then when we got WGN involved, they were like, "We don't like, we don't like this storyline either." And I kind of realized that they were probably right, and I understood why that, mm-hmm. that didn't make any sense, and that the thing would actually be cooler and stronger without those characters. And so I cut them out. You know, so there were a lot of things that changed um, yeah. after I sold it. Uh, okay, so you yeah. give it to the old agent who really responded strongly. Exactly, and that's when we got Paul. Involved, and then we went out with it, and um, because it was you know it was a spec, so they they could read it. I wasn't yeah. really pitching it, but I I would get on the phone with a bunch of different people, and because I didn't really know what the whole thing w- was, back to what you were saying before, you know, I think a lot of people had a trouble with with me being so open about it and being like, well, this could happen or this could happen or this yeah. could happen. We've got lots of different balls in the air and it just depends on what, where you guys want to go. And, you know, I'd love to work with you and collaborate with you to figure out where it was. Well, you know, a lot of networks are like, they need that thing of like, you're certain where it's going to go. Yeah. They're still going to tell you not to do that. <laughs> right. Sure. They're still going to, they're, they're still going to be that process. And I was just being much more because I was in a different place in my life about it, I was just much more honest and open about it. I was like, I don't know where it goes, really. Let's all work together and figure it out. Sure. You know, and but that makes you seem kind of like weak or a loser or whatever. So, <laughs> so a lot of people didn't respond to that. What I loved about the guys from WGN was that they just loved the world of it. Mm-hmm. They loved the riskiness of it. You know, they had their model was straight to series. Yeah. Um, and other networks that we were talking to were like, you know, going to do the pilot thing. And I'd been down that road. And I was like, I'd rather just take the chance with the underdogs, the guys that want to take a big risk and are going to go straight to series if we if we do it. So, so, yeah, so how does we signed that work on with them. With WGN, obviously they do go straight to series, but yeah. does that mean there's a lot of development on what those 13 episodes would be? Well, we did a lot of development on the pilot. Okay. And, um, and then... Uh, they decided they they pulled the trigger based on that. I mean, I think they partially they pulled the trigger on a writers' room, mm-hmm. um, and they got Sony Pictures TV involved as a stu- as a co mm-hmm. um, studio, and uh, and I moved out here and uh, we started looking at reading scripts and hiring writers mm-hmm. and we set up a room and you know what kind of stuff were you looking for when you were reading submissions because you must have been inundated. Yeah, you know I had never done it before and um, Sony. Uh, hooked us up with Peter Tolan mm-hmm. um, as my sort of like partner in EP, uh, and because he has done it before a lot, obviously yeah. um, I kind of ceded that to him. And uh, you know, I I I was just sort of looking for smart writers, mm-hmm. and um, I worked with Peter and and his company to read a lot of scripts and meet with a lot of people, and we mm-hmm. just picked people that we responded to. 
Um, yeah, so who, uh, you don't have to go into specifics, but in this room, you know, some people are looking for a baseball team, right? They're looking for different kinds of skills. Some people are looking for, you know, uh, people to back them up, people who have ideas, people who can write. I mean, ideally, you want all of that. Mm-hmm. So when you guys finally came to the room that you wound up with, what were the personalities that made up that room, and how did the room work? Well, we only, I think it was a small room. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I said, it, this is the only room I've ever been in, so I can't really compare sure. um, to other things. It was a small room. I think we had four writers. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is so reasonable for 13 yep. episodes. I mean, that's you can really get to work on that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've heard that there's rooms with 12 writers and 19 writers and stuff. I, I guess when you're doing 22 episodes, you, you need mm-hmm. a lot of people, but... Uh, um, you know, we had a lot of different personalities. We had somebody who really knew the world, the sort of world of coal mining and working class uh, southeastern um, culture, um, who had worked on a bunch of different shows, including some HBO cable shows and stuff. We had a, a woman who was primarily a comedy writer mm-hmm. um, Interesting. before, but when I met with her, obviously super, super smart and very good with characters and story. Um, and she was someone Peter had worked with before. Um, we had a guy who had worked on uh, Justified, a mm-hmm. sort of similar in, in tone in a way kind of series. Um, and... Uh, who else did we have? Now I'm gonna. Now I'm pissing someone off. You and, others. Out. and others. And others. <laughs> um, so it was. A, it was a diverse um, room. Oh, we had uh, another guy who kind of came in as a consultant. Okay. Um, and kind of helped us break some stories and. Yeah. So let's. I'd like to talk about that. So yeah. in the day to day, how were stories broken? How was the season figured out? What What did it look like in the room for you guys? Well, it was really kind of loose and open, and we just would sit around and, and, you know, we started out pitching, you know, what are the bigger arcs? And I said something to the effect of, I don't, I don't know where this goes, but I always saw the sheriff, you know, trapped in a mine, hmm. and, and people took that and ran with it, and we figured out a big story arc for him based on that. You know, I said, I... In the pilot, Big Foster attempts to kill his mother, but she doesn't. She's not dead, so we need to figure out: is she going to die, or is she going to come back? And what's going to happen with her? What happens to him after she, you know, comes back to life? If she does, you know, all these kinds of we we had all these things there, and we just kind of then, then just figured out where where they might go. Mm-hmm. And you know, as I guess there is in every room, there's a ton of speculation. Um, and, you know, the quote-unquote best ideas kind of win. And we, we were writing everything down on cards and pinning them to the wall. Mm-hmm. And some big story arcs kind of came out of that. And then we brought in the studio and the network and just kind of pitched them very generally mm-hmm. what the arc of the season would be for all these different characters. Um, and they said they were on board, and then we went into kind of breaking episode by episode. We didn't really do um, detailed outlines, mm-hmm. which was my instinct was would be to do that because I like to get stuff on paper. Um, but we kept it looser, and we did like one or two page outlines mm-hmm. for every episode, and then we pitched those, mm-hmm. and then um, got to work writing. It's interesting to hear that you didn't do more detailed outlines. Um, or, or that you would have wanted to, considering your process being described as liking to find your way, you know, not having, we're not working off of that outline. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if that was the right way to do it or, mm-hmm. or not. It was kind of the way we did it. And as it turned out, I think we did a lot more rewriting oh. after first drafts were done sure. than we would have before. Mm-hmm. And did and, you do that rewriting? Did the room do that rewriting? How did it work? Well, as as it worked out, you know, we were we were slated. Production got pushed by about four months, mm-hmm. um, and uh, we we were initially we were supposed to start shooting in January, and um, I was really really against that because I just I didn't think that the show should take place in the winter. Hmm. And we were trying to find a mountain, you know, in southern Georgia, and we couldn't find one. 
And so eventually, I think we prevailed on the network to push the shooting, and that allowed us to shoot in Pittsburgh. Um, but uh, so that meant that the room was open for months longer than it was supposed to be. So by the time we started shooting, the room was pretty much gone. Mm-hmm. So at that point, um, myself and Peter Tolan had to rework um, all the scripts because as we got into production and as we, as actors, you know, brought their part yeah. to the whole thing. Um, and as we started to really figure out who the characters were and what was happening, and then, of course, there's all the things that happen in production. You can't really shoot this scene because we can't afford it or right. whatever it is. We had to do a lot of rewriting as we were shooting. Right. Well, that, that makes a lot of sense. I, mean, I think that's pretty normal. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, especially for a series that does all the scripts up top and then starts production. Um, tell me about working with Tolan. He's a great writer, a good guy, a very funny guy. Um, this doesn't seem like a Peter Tolan show that we, you know, have seen Peter Tolan do. But what did you learn from working with him? He's been in the business for a while. Well, I, I learned everything from yeah. working with him. I mean, it was kind of incredible um, getting to do my my first real show with him. You know, um, he was the first person that uh, Sony. Uh, suggested that that maybe would work on the show he was the first person they sent the script to and i flew out here from from austin texas where i live now um to meet with him and figured it would be one of those you know meetings where it's like okay thanks but i'm not going to do it and he just the first thing he said to me was i read a lot of scripts and this is the best script i've read in several years wow and we had a really great conversation about the script, and we talked about movies that would connect it to it, like Winter's Bone and some other things. And uh, and and based on that conversation, he decided that he he wanted to work on it. I mean, I knew of all the stuff that he's done, Rescue Me was the one that I really was the show that I really knew um, and loved that show. So um, it was I, I just felt incredibly grateful to you know get to go to school with with this guy who sure has who really knows his way around this business absolutely so let's let's go back for a minute and talk about um first of all i want to hear about the nuts and bolts of your process when you're sitting down to write anything a a play a script uh, a book what does it look like what do you where do you do it do you have music on how many hours do you put in really the the nuts and bolts of the process um basically i well i'll tell you where, what i was doing for the most of the years in new york when i was which was that i um i got to a point where i had about five things in development i had created a re, a reality type show for amc i had sold a script to cbs I had done a bunch of stuff, and I kind of moved out here um, with my wife and uh, thinking, like, this is it. And this was about maybe 10, 12 years ago. Mm-hmm. I was like, this is it. Now I'm going to be, you know, Hollywood success. And I had made an indie film, and that had come out, and um, that's sort of what got me started. And uh, now every, every one of those projects fell apart. And I went back to New York in despair and I needed some money, and uh, and I was offered a job at an advertising agency, and I took it, thinking I'll do it for a few months, and and then I realized I'm not I'm going to do it forever, and I'm really a loser, and I'm I'm going to kill myself, and then I woke up one day and I realized that you know I used to get up at nine thirty in the morning, get some coffee in the New York Times. And about 11 o'clock, I'd start writing, and I'd write till 1 and whatever. And then I'd go for a swim and eat lunch and, you know, do lunch. I had a very leisurely life. And suddenly I have a day job where I have to be at work at 1030 in the morning. And I, But I realized that there's actually time in the morning starting at, like, 6 o'clock that you can write. And I got into I, I got myself an office, like a writing room with uh, one of these... Uh, what do you call them? Like just collective spaces yeah. in New York, and uh, and I just got my ass up out of bed really early every morning, and I went into this thing, and I would write for three hours. Wow! Um, and because I had limited time, I I really got to work. I didn't read the paper; I just had to work every day, and I got so I was so much more productive. Hmm. Um, having a day job, yeah, it was kind of incredible. Yeah, um, and so much those more serious. Really help. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, my process is I just kind of get to work. Um, I instinct has a lot to do with it. 
I make pretty vague outlines, Mm -hmm. you know, that are really just for me, that are just like single kind of sentences on a page with, you know, act breaks and Mm -hmm. stuff. Um, And they're kind of just coded for me. And I find that halfway through a script, I've already learned other things about the characters and the story, and sure. it all starts to change. So the back half of my outline tends to go away. Mm-hmm. But at that point, I know what I'm doing, and I try to just rush through a draft as quickly as possible mm-hmm. to just get it out there. Then comes the hard part, you know, of trying to make it not suck. But um, yeah, how? Tell me about editing yourself, because that can be really tough. I'm not good at it. <laughs> so what do you do? You, you know, I try to take a uh, after I finish something, I, I I will be so excited about it, and I'll read it, and I'll just think that I'm a genius. Of course. And um, I'll really be high on myself, and I've learned that I I really have to just put it away yeah. for like three weeks or more, and then I'll read it again and realize what an idiot I am. Um, and hopefully there's something in there that I still like. And I'll just try to read it fresh. And, re- and w- w- at the point where I something was wrong or whatever, I'll just make quick notes in the script and with a pen. And then I'll just go back. If I'm, if I'm so inclined, I'll go back and try to do a new draft. Have you noticed, uh, you know, you've obviously you've written a lot of pages. Uh, have you noticed in going back and looking at these scripts, whether it's three weeks later or whether it's three years later, uh, Ticks or habits that are specifically yours, whether those are things to edit out or to keep in. Yeah, that's a good question. I I don't know. Okay, I don't know if I if I've noticed that. I'm I'm sure that they're there, and I probably they probably annoy uh, everyone else that reads them <laughs> that I don't even see them. I guess. Uh, yeah, I mean it's it's hard to know that stuff, right? I mean, I would say a couple of things about my writing. One is that it's often unintentionally funny. Mm-hmm. Like I think I'm writing some a serious scene and it's actually kind of funny, which d- didn't really work with this show. I had to kind of really um, hold back on that, and uh, and I also tend to I tend to things tend to be obscure and hard to understand and follow sometimes in mm-hmm. in, in what I write, and I'm not sure why that is. I think I'm just not enough of a pro, but. I think that's one of my ticks. Well, it may be that it makes sense to you on that first pass, right? And so subsequent passes are about making it a little more accessible Clear. for others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which, you know, listen, call it dumbing down for the audience. <laughs> well, it, there's dumbing down and then there's just, you know, clarity that gives you the freedom yeah. to go in all kinds of different directions. I, I think that one of the tr- tricky things about this show is that because there's so many different stories and it's so complex that um, it, it it sort of boxes us in story-wise a little bit. Hmm. And if you look at a really super simple storyline, like Breaking Bad, for example, very, very simple premise, mm-hmm. you can go all kinds of crazy places with that premise because it is so simple and the audience is not going to let go mm-hmm. of the fact that this guy need, needs to make money to help his family. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah, and, and he can go in all kinds of crazy directions in order to to make that happen because it's a very simple motivation that never changes. Mm-hmm. Well, how, I mean, that raises the question for me. How do you deal with exposition? I, t- I don't know. I t- I'm, ba- I'm, I'm kind of bad at it. And, um, I don't know that that's true. <laughs> well, and it w- you know, after we shot the pilot, um, we looked at it and there were lots of little gaps, things that seemed obvious to me, mm-hmm. that if A, then C, I don't need to show you B. Yeah. And as it turned out, we kind of needed, the audience kind of needed B. Interesting. So we did a lot of reshoots where we added little explanatory huh. moments in between scenes that gave you as an audience a little more to hold on to. Hmm. You know, it's just a fine line between like, uh, we're not dumbing it down for you and you have to kind of pay attention and and then being lost where it's just too much work sure um because because as i said before there's so much texture and so much life in this show and so many different characters that i also think i want the audience to be able to like really look at it like a movie and really kind of live live in it and hear the music and just you know 
just take part in all the visuals and everything else. Um, and you can only do that when you're really you feel comfortable in the story and you know what's mm-hmm. happening. Yeah, that's a good point. So, um, I think that's a good lesson too for for any writer. Um, you talked about being a visual artist. Were you always a writer and an artist? Was this always the goal for you? Uh, yeah, I don't know if it was the goal, but it's just a fact. Um, uh, I started out um, getting involved in the visual arts when I lived in Chicago, and uh, you know, photography and painting and some other things. And then I, I kind of always knew I was a good writer, but I didn't really want to be. I didn't really want to sit around writing novels. Um, and I went to see theater there. I went to you know, the Steppenwolf Theater, and uh, that just blew me away. And so I decided I wanted to do theater because I could combine all these things. Mm-hmm. And then I did theater for a while, and then I wanted to make a film because I'd always loved film mm-hmm. as much as Were theater. you involved with Steppenwolf in no, Chicago? Oh, okay. No, no, no. I, um, I lived in Chicago for a few years and uh, and went to see a lot of plays there sure. and everything. And then I wrote a play and uh, got into Yale Drama School. And so I went to New Haven mm-hmm. um, from Chicago. Um, but then when I, I wanted to make a film and I, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an amateur photographer and I've had, you know, f- photography shows and different galleries and stuff like that. I mean, I've al- always thought very visually and I love that aspect of film as much as anything. So when, you know, part of the conception of this show was the visuals of being on top of this mountain and these kind of weirdo hillbillies that live there and what they look like and what they dress like and, you know what their tattoos are like, and all the details of this kind of kind of thing. So um, that was always real, and and the sound too. I'm also an amateur musician, and um, the way that the show sounded was really important to me. The kind of music that they would make, um, and that was a lot of work there figuring out what that was. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, sorry. <laughs> um, so so take me through. So you started writing plays. Yeah. Um, was that. Was that giving you what you needed in a creative outlet way? Yeah, especially in the early days. Um, I, I was living in New York, and I was part of a theater company. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was that theater company? It was called Cucaracha Theater. Okay. Um, and it started in the late 80s, and it went through into the like mid-late 90s. And I had about five years with them where I did three plays, and then those plays were done uh, kind of like all over the country in smaller theaters. Um, and... It was really cool and gratifying and everything, and uh, I w- made something like $900 a year. <laughs> right. You know, and I finally decided that I just really couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. Um, I had vague notions of g- getting into television, and I tried to write a couple of specs, but they just weren't very good, and I just kind of didn't know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then eventually just decided I would make a little film so mm-hmm. I, so I did that and that makes a lot of sense yeah. i mean that's making a small independent feature is feels attainable in the same way putting up a play does right you you get to be involved with all aspects yeah, of that totally. production totally um clearly at some point writing television writing episodic television made sense started to make sense to you was it just a, a the process of doing it well it was Partly, I mean, when I when I wrote my little indie film, um, I got it into the Sundance Filmmakers Lab, mm-hmm. and um, and then I met a bunch of people there, and, and a lot of them worked in film and TV, and they were encouraging me, and I needed a job, and at the same time, um, my agent sent me sent me the pilot to The Sopranos, hadn't aired yet, and I watched that, and I was like, holy shit. I want to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, this was really smart, and it was like theater to me. Yeah. And I actually tried to get a job in that show, and, and apparently almost didn't did, but didn't. <laughs> but anyway, um, that was it. I kind of decided I, I wanted to do TV, and I um, had an idea for a series that was kind of based on a weirdo French film that I had seen. Mm-hmm. And I pitched my, pitched it to my agent, and he said, "Sounds good to me. Get out here." And I got out, I came out here, we had some producers, and I walked into CBS and sold it in the room. And I thought, oh, this is easy. This is great. Um, and that started me down that 
kind of a road. And and as I did that, as as I said, it was frustrating. And then the game changed, and so many great shows started getting created mm-hmm. that it was like, oh, this is really where I want to be. Yeah, you can kind of stretch out. TV wasn't so limited. Yeah, no, yeah. it's really incredible right now. Um, I mean, I, I I was just saying in an interview a couple of days ago, somebody said to me, what's your favorite show on the air? And I said, I don't have any time to watch anything, but I watched three episodes of Mr. Robot, and I think it's fucking awesome. <laughs> and then it won the Golden Globe, right? Didn't it? Maybe. Did I it? don't know. Yeah. I don't... It did? Do these awards matter? No, Peter, no, really? of course not. Uh, <laughs> obviously, I didn't watch them, but I'm saying, I'm, I mean, like, that show to me is so radical and cool and dark and interesting. Um, and the fact that it not only became a series on the air, but also won a big award is like, hmm. that's phenomenal. Um, yeah. You know? Yeah, it points to the way things have changed in many ways. And, um, and that we're in a really good space good spot yeah. i think well this is how we end every podcast tell us what else you are watching what you've watched in the past couple of years even that started to show you that tv could be different well when uh when i sold the spec to um wgn and started working on it i i realized i really need to like dig into tv right now and, mm-hmm. and see what's out there and so i decided to start over on breaking bad i had watched you know a lot of episodes of it but I hadn't, you know, binged it or whatever. And I binged that 63 episodes in less than a week. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was not healthy. That's a dark week. It was a dark, <laughs> dark week. And it was the coldest winter in 35 years sure. in New York City. It was a dark week, but, man, was that great. Yeah. And that was so inspiring. And then I just started watching some of the other um, really good series a couple of years ago, like... Uh, um, House uh, of Cards, I watched that, and I yeah. I really enjoyed that. And um, uh, Top of the Lake, mm-hmm. I watched that and really um, loved that. And The Fall, that BBC yeah. series, you know, set in, like, Northern Ireland. Yeah. And Broadchurch. Uh, I just started really watching these kind of, like, dark, um, cool series that I just thought were amazing. Yeah, interesting. I mean, I, I think that... One of the frustrating things for me when I was pitching network shows was it was all about blue sky. Mm-hmm. Like, it all had to be, like, you know, pa- happy, positive, successful people that were really good at their jobs and made you feel like you aspired to be like them and whatever. And it wasn't na- didn't come naturally to me to write really positive kinds mm-hmm. of material like that. And, um, and then things just uh, kind of turned and the antihero became the thing that people really wanted in, mm. in cable TV. And, and I just felt much more comfortable and started loving all these anti-hero-type shows. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, the Ferals are, in many, ways as a, in many ways as a clan, they're anti-heroes. Mm-hmm. Outsiders premieres January 26th. 9 p.m. On WGN America. Excellent. Uh, people should check it out. It's, it's a really cool series. I think, uh, uh, I think people will like it. Congratulations to you. Thank you very much. It was really fun talking to you. Thanks for being here. Now leaving Nerdist.com.